0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue the series, The Suffering and Triumph of Jesus, with the message entitled, The Cornerstone. So turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 46, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: Each one of us would have put Jesus to death. Had we had the chance. And the glorious message of Easter is that the man who is our Savior is the man whom we have rejected. Our only hope is in the one we have overwhelmingly despised. The cornerstone, the one that holds the building together, is the stone the builders have rejected. Now, when I say that, I'm not ignorant of the very real fact that Jesus remains an overwhelmingly popular figure, not just in our culture, but around the world, although there are those who despise him. You know, some time ago, a so-called artist featured a crucifix in a jar in his own urine, trying to symbolize what he thought of Christ, and to the most part, this display was condemned. On the other hand, whether it be politicians, entertainers, educators, news reporters, or almost everyone else, Jesus is not criticized today when he's spoken of. He's spoken of with respect. I think a great many people have therefore come to the conclusion that while some despicable people 2,000 years ago put him to death, we, we surely would never have done that today. We're much too enlightened for that. To this, I wish to respond in several ways. First, the Jesus of popular culture, or the Jesus of popular imagination, is very different from the historical Jesus we encounter in the Scripture. Now, we have hints in the New Testament of this kind of a skewing of the real Jesus. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 4 says, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, you put up with it readily enough so we can see how tempting it was to receive a Jesus that is skewed and twisted and made up. Consider the warning that's found in 1 John 4, verses 2 to 3. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. You know, in the ancient Greek world, the flesh, or the body, was considered a lower form of existence. And so it should not surprise us to find that there were those, in order to make Jesus acceptable to the Greek mind, portrayed him as a spiritual being, but not as a fully human bodily being. And in so doing, Jesus was changed to become acceptable to philosophical Greeks. That process is still happening today. Think of the way that Jesus is often portrayed. You know, there are those who see Jesus as the Republican interested in God and country and less government intrusion in our lives. And then there's Jesus who's the Democrat and he's interested in justice for birthers and dreamers, and a, a Jesus who's concerned with the inclusion of the marginalized. And then there's the non judgmental Jesus, one who accepts people for who they are and would never try to change them. And then the Jesus who lectured people about not judging others. And of course, the Jesus who is opposed to organized religion, who would rather have you construct the religion that individually suits you. And, and behind that is, of course, the Jesus who never intended to start a church, even though, you know, he explicitly said that he would come to build his church. You see what happens? People start with their most cherished values and then imagine Jesus is just like that. And once we do that, we can't imagine that Jesus is anything but lovable and completely acceptable to us. Surely, we would not do to him what those horrible people did to him in the past. And what gets lost is Isaiah's prophecy of what the real Messiah or the servant of the Lord would be like. Isaiah 53 verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. You know, yesterday I began a discussion on Jesus' parable recorded in Matthew 21, verses 33 to 46. And in so doing, I pointed out that Jesus really is the stone the builders rejected. The story of Easter can't be told unless we come to terms with the human hatred of Jesus. The cross speaks to the reality that the human race despises Him, not adores Him. And so let's begin where I left off yesterday. I'm reading Matthew 21, verses 33 to 46. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a winepress in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them, and although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Now, of course, this is one of Jesus' parables. He told it on Tuesday, that is, on the Tuesday before Friday, a Friday that we now call Good Friday. He told this story on Tuesday, and on Friday, they nailed him to a cross. Now, the actual story itself is actually quite easy to understand. The owner of a vineyard leases it out, and those who have leased the property begin to act as if it's their own. And eventually, their rebellion leads to these outlaws killing the son of the owner. Now, to the most part, the meaning of the parable, as I've said, is clear. The landowner is God. The vineyard is Israel. And that fits very well with a very similar parable that's told in Isaiah chapter 5. In Isaiah 5, we find the story of a vineyard of God, and it's a parable, and it's explained in verse 7. Isaiah 5 verse 7 says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And so Jesus is borrowing from that theme in Isaiah chapter 5. It was God who planted Israel. Now then, who are the tenants who lease out the land? Well, the answer to that is that the tenants are the leaders of the nation. In this case, they refer to the Pharisees and to the chief priests, those who have been entrusted by God in teaching the people of Israel the law of God and teaching them to be faithful to the Lord and to make Israel a fruitful nation. But of course, in the history of Israel, the leaders had been everything from priests and others like elders and princes and kings, And Jesus is saying that this current crop of religious teachers in his day are just like their forefathers, subverting the good ways of God and confusing God's people. And along the way, God sent prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and so many others. Each one was either ignored or imprisoned or killed. And then finally, the son in this parable is Jesus himself. Jesus is predicting that the religious teachers of Israel will kill him out of pure hatred for God. Now, this fits well with the rest of the gospel accounts. For six months now, Jesus has been telling his disciples that the rulers of Jerusalem would kill him. And that's what we read in Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. In the next chapter in Matthew, chapter 17, verses 22 to 23, we read, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. And then to Matthew 20, verse 18. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Now back to the parable. When Jesus says, what will the owner of the vineyard do to the men who kill the Son, the crowd is ready for the answer. He will kill the tenants. Now then, here's our temptation. We're apt to read this and shake our heads and say, wow, weren't those Pharisees and religious teachers bad people? If it had been me, I would have never treated Jesus that way. And so from that perspective, we tend to reserve the hatred of Jesus to a confined group of bad actors. Let's find out if that perception is correct or not.
0: During the month of March, we'll be highlighting the international efforts of Back to the Bible Canada. Did you know that our radio program with Dr. John airs in India and neighboring countries such as Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, Burma, Vietnam, Eastern China, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Iran? If ensuring that your brothers and sisters around the world have access to daily Bible teaching is important to you, you can help. Your gift toward Back to the Bible Canada's international ministries would help develop and encourage pastors in India and help reach thousands of people with trusted Bible teaching programs across much of Asia and the Middle East. To support our international ministries, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: When Jesus applies his parable, his application is altogether surprising. Let me explain why. About a 1,000 years before Jesus, David, who was then the king of Israel, had committed adultery and then configured a way for the husband of the woman to be killed in battle. In response, a prophet named Nathan told the king a parable about a poor family with a little lamb and about a rich man who killed that lamb in order to feed his dinner guests. David, not realizing that the parable was told against him, was angry. He said, that rich man who has done that deserves to die. And with that, Nathan responds, you are the man. Now, when Jesus told the parable of the tenants, you might have expected just such an ending. We might expect him to point the finger at the Pharisees and say, you're the man or you're the men, you're the tenants in my story. You know, if the parable had ended that way, we might be justified for our smug feelings of superiority over the Pharisees. But even though verse 43 does record Jesus telling the parable that the kingdom of God will be taken from the Pharisees and given to people producing its fruit, it's what he says before that that causes us to be surprised and perplexed. So let me reread verse 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And then having made that statement, which is then followed by the promise that the leadership of God's people is going to be taken away from the Pharisees, then verse 44 says, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Let's see if we can understand what Jesus is saying. Yesterday, I pointed out that Jesus was quoting from Psalm 118. It's a song of David, and it reflects on David's own experience. All the builders of their own empires, either Goliath the giant or King Saul or others, despised David. They rejected him, but God had chosen him. And that's the reason why David became king. He became the cornerstone of Israel. Now, Jesus is the greater David. He's been chosen by God according to the parable he told. He's the son. He may have been rejected by the builders, that is, he was rejected by the religious leaders, he was despised by them, but that notwithstanding, he has become the cornerstone. Now, in our day, in which we lay down foundations of houses differently than they did in that day, we we tend to misunderstand what a cornerstone was. The cornerstone of an ancient building was more than simply a part of the foundation. A cornerstone is that stone which finalizes the shape of the building. It's placed on the corner of two primary walls and that, and that one stone determines the lay of the entire building. All of the other stones that get laid after it are adjusted to the lay of the cornerstone. That one stone determines the positioning of all other stones after it. And Jesus is saying that he's the most important person in all of history. Now, this statement of Jesus is very important to the teaching of the early church. You know, in Acts chapter 4, we read of Peter and John appearing before the, the rulers of Israel. And the rulers are angry because these two men have healed a crippled man in the name of Jesus. And then they proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. And then they're telling Israel that they're responsible for crucifying the Lord of glory. And then in verse 11, they add these words, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then they make themselves additionally clear by adding, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. In other words, if you want to know what Jesus meant when he called himself the cornerstone, he meant that he was the only man ever who could offer forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. Now, that's not the only time when Jesus was called a cornerstone. In Romans chapter 9, verses 30 to 33, we read that Israel, who pursued the law, did not obtain righteousness, but Gentiles, who knew nothing about the law, gained righteousness, and that righteousness came through Christ alone. And then the passage adds, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. In other words... Jesus alone can make us right with God, and that statement, that statement that he's the only savior of the world, is not only the cornerstone, but it's the most offensive thing you've ever heard. So I hope you hear this. When Jesus said that he was the stone the builders rejected, and yet he was the cornerstone, he was saying that he was the only way to God. You know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. That's offensive stuff. And then after saying that, he adds, I'm reading Matthew 21, verse 44, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. So imagine the image. If a cornerstone is too low, someone might not notice it. And as they walk along, they can trip over it, sending them head over heels, perhaps over even an embankment or into some other treacherous place so that they're broken to pieces. And Jesus is saying, if you underestimate me, I will trip you up and break you to pieces. But Jesus is still not done, he adds. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So imagine a large cornerstone that falls over. A cornerstone could weigh several thousands of pounds, and if it fell on you, it would kill you. So what is Jesus saying? Well, Jesus is saying that after he is rejected by the Pharisees, and after he's condemned to death, he will then be raised from the dead, and consequently, he will become the central figure of human history. And if you ignore him, you'll trip over him and fall to your death. But if you oppose him, Deliberately run into him. He will fall on you and crush you to death. So, what is Jesus saying? Well, I want to take you back to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm and it tells of the ultimate Son who will rule the nations. The psalm begins with the words, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The nations are projected as the world that stands opposed to the Messiah. The psalm then ends with a bit of counsel. It says, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Indeed, the psalm even warns that his anger is quickly aroused. So one gets the feeling that we are to fall at his feet and worship him. Doesn't that sound very much like what Jesus said? He's the cornerstone, so you had better take note lest you be crushed. Now, putting all of that together, what does it mean? Well, first, Jesus will always inspire the most passionate reactions in all people. He is the most controversial person in history. No human being can be neutral about him. When you actually come to know who he really is, you'll either love him or you're going to hate him. The response will always be passionate. Indeed, I could say more that the natural human response is to hate him with all the fury of the Pharisees. In the end, we're not so much different than they. Second, Jesus will always make us uncomfortably aware of what God demands of us. He will confront us with our pride, with our treatment of the poor, with our sexual sins, with our bitterness and unwillingness to forgive our enemies, with our idolatry. I mean, the list goes on and on. If you haven't been devastated and made uncomfortable by Jesus so that you feel vulnerable and unworthy of God, well, then you've never met the real person. Jesus does get into your face and leaves you uncomfortably naked in his presence. But the one who does that is also the one who loves us. Now third, Jesus represents God's only second chance for a guilty and lost humanity. Jesus is the second chance for the damned, those who are guilty of stoning the prophets as all of us are. And finally, our response to Jesus will dictate our eternal future. Acts 4 verse 12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is the wonder of Christ. The very one who comes to show us how sinful we are is the very same one who takes our sin from us and suffers on our behalf on the cross. And then this very same one comes and offers us forgiveness and reconciliation with God and regeneration to new life and the hope of an eternity. This is the only one who does this. And for that reason, Jesus will always be the centerpiece of human history. He's the one we'll either rejoice in or the one that we bump against and utterly crushes us. Why? Because he's the chosen cornerstone. God has chosen him for all of eternity. He is the object of worship. The builders of Israel rejected him even as the builders of all kingdoms in this world reject him but he's chosen by God and for that reason, he will always stand at the center. To stand with Jesus is to stand with history. He is the future and he's the present. He's the object of
0: human adoration. John, I don't think it can be said enough that the cornerstone is the cornerstone. It will always be there. It's it's the stone that every other stone depends upon, and that's Jesus.
1: Yeah, and, and we need to say that when every single value that we hold in our era vanishes, and a new set of values take place when a new culture replaces ours, the cornerstone will still remain the same. Jesus is the only constant of all human civilizations. Jesus is the pinnacle of human civilization. It's always about Jesus, no matter how we reject him or accept him, he
0: always will be the centerpiece of all that is this world. Thanks, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. With so many interruptions in our lives, including opportunity to travel, we want to share that we are now offering registration for our 2022 Israel experience. This is a bucket list experience like none other. An opportunity to travel to the Holy Land, experience so many of the locations where Jesus, Paul, David, and so many others walked. Visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, Capernaum, David's royal palace, worship at the garden tomb, and sail the Sea of Galilee, all under the teaching of Dr. John Newfeld. So plan on joining us from April 24th to May 2nd, 2022, for the Israel Experience, hosted by Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teacher Dr. John Neufeld, Again's Phil Callaway, and special musical guests. The Holy Land is a spectacular journey of faith. Registration is limited, so call Back to the Bible Canada at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca slash israelexperience.